You know, before we dive in uh, to the scripture and continue our sermon series, and even before I say a few words about Father's Day, I wanted to make mention that the class that Daniel is going to be teaching, um, uh, to, for you to understand how important it is for us as a church, this is not a class that we're offering just for you. I'm going to show up. I want to learn together. I want to be in community. I want to break open scripture together. And so, as Pastor Denise shared, it doesn't matter where your level of maturity or exposure to the scriptures, this is going to be a great time for all of us to grow in the Word of God. And so, before we go to the scripture, today is a significant day. Today is Father's Day. And I recognize that today is a day that it comes for many of us with mixed emotions. Um, there's fathers in our lives that deserve to be aptly celebrated because um, they've shaped our lives and impacted us. And if you know a good dad, whether they're your dad directly or you just know of a good man that's been a father figure, celebrate them today. Uh, I'll speak on my behalf, but also in, in my many conversations with men, uh, oftentimes we doubt our own impact. We don't know if we're making a positive difference, and it makes a huge blessing to us to hear, hey, you're doing great. Um, but I realize that for some of us today is not a day that we can easily celebrate um, because perhaps your dad wasn't around or maybe your dad had a negative presence in your life. I could resonate with both of those experiences personally. Uh, or maybe you long to be a dad and, and that's a longing that's not been fulfilled. Um, wherever you find yourselves, the joyous part of this day for all of us is that we get to celebrate our Heavenly Father. In all of it, we get to acknowledge that we're His children, that He's our Father, and that He anchors us all. And so, if you're a dad today, I hope you get celebrated aptly. Um, and, and if you're in a tough space, I do pray, and we will pray that you would experience the comfort and grace that only comes from God the Father meeting us in that. So would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the ultimate gift that this day reminds all of us, and that is that you came to reveal the Father to us, and that God is no longer just God to us, or a heavenly judge, or a creator, but that now we can call you Dad. You reconciled us to the Father. But I pray, Lord, for those that are anxiously waiting to celebrate the dads in their life, I pray, Lord, that you would just give them great cheer and joy in this time. And Lord, for those for whom this day is a struggle, Lord, would you meet with them? Would you remind them of your presence, of your goodness? In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Can we give a hand for the fathers, the men in our lives, in our church, who show up and make a difference? We celebrate you. We're grateful for you, and we need you. Let's go to Scripture. We're continuing our sermon series today that we began last week, where we're looking at the words of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we spent time in the passages that's known as the Beatitudes, and we're going to continue where we left off from last week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16 says the following. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to worship you, to gather as a people, Lord, to bring our hearts before your word, and we pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you glorify Jesus? Would you magnify him in our hearts and minds, reveal the word of God to us, illuminate it, and may we grow in our love and our affection for you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, you know, uh, this past week, I actually met someone that was very interesting, um, well, at least interesting to me because I realized this person didn't exist 60 years ago, didn't exist even a shorter time, but definitely not 60 years ago because we didn't have a thing called social media back then. This person I met manages influencers. It's like, what a job. Um, this is literally what they do all day long. They have a bunch of clients who are social media influencers. And if you're not familiar with what that means, that means that these folks, um, by virtue of the number of followers they have and the kind of their brand recognition, when they post and share a product, then they're likely to stimulate people's purchasing power around that product. And so companies will pay them hey, wear this shirt and share it, uh, go to this place and link it, whatever the case is. And it was a fascinating um, conversation because the woman kept the identity of her influencers. Um, I, I didn't ask for the identity, but I was asking for enough information that she had to kind of couch uh, her answers because if she said too much, uh, she would have revealed who she manages. Um, but this was the interesting moment. I said, do you like your customers? Do you like your clients? Do you respect them? And it got queasy. Um, it's like, well, so let me tell you what I do. I was like, no, no, I know what you do. I know what you do. You manage, but do you, do you think they're good people? Do you, do, are they people of integrity? It's like, but this is the total number of like, you know, products that they represent and sales revenue. And then at, at that point, I just said, I got to stop asking questions because she's getting very uncomfortable. I wasn't trying to make her uncomfortable. I was just wondering what that was like, what that experience is. Was it similar to what they do in France during elections? People go into the voting booth with a pen in their nose because they say this stinks either way. You know, and so like I thought I was trying to fi figure out like, does, do you do this? happy or do you like regret? And what I realized, the, just the interesting phenomenon in our world in that you could have influence yet lack integrity. You could actually influence people in our world toward decisions of all sorts and yet personally be completely absent of integrity. But for Jesus, what's interesting is that in these verses where he begins to speak of the influence that you and I as his disciples are to have in this world. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, the audience which, to whom Jesus is speaking, 
he's speaking to his disciples. It says that very clearly. His disciples came to him and he began to speak to them the words that we're studying. So he's not speaking to people who are marginally interested or like a passerby. No, these are people that have decided to be his apprentice, who, who want to follow after his life and mirror him in this world. And to those people, in these verses, he's speaking to them about the influence that they're supposed to have, but he doesn't talk to them about their influence before he talks to them about their character. That's what we looked at last week. In the Beatitudes, we looked at Jesus' image of what a follower of his should look like in this world, the characteristics that we should embody, that we should be merciful, peacemaking, pure in heart, that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, that there should be joy in suffering. And if you remember, last week we specifically talked about the impossibility for us to embody any of these characteristics, that Jesus wasn't describing things that you have to do to become a Christian. He was describing the character that should flow out of us by virtue of the Holy Spirit transforming us as we follow him. In other words, apart from his transformative work of grace, everything we talked about last week is impossible. You could do one-offs, but you can't do it consistently. And thanks be to God that you and I are not called to do this consistently on our own. That it's through him, it's by him, that he enables us, empowers us to embody these characteristics that we studied last week. And so if you weren't here, I encourage you to check out the sermon just so that you could hear the words that Jesus says to us in those first opening verses of Matthew. But today, we look at how Jesus intends to use the character he shapes in us in order to influence our world. After he transforms us, now he gives us a sense of how he's going to use us in this world. And he says two very powerful statements describing us. The first one is he says, you are the salt of the earth. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, you are the salt of the earth. I love these awkward moments in church. The introverts hate it. The extroverts can't fully understand why we're doing this. But turn to the person next to you again and say, you are the light of the world. This is heavy stuff. First of all, you say, man, I don't, this is kind of poetic. What does this mean? Um, I've, I've, I know I've felt salty at times toward people, but now I'm the salt of the earth. What exactly does this mean? I'm the light of the world. What is Jesus trying to describe here? And I would like to propose to you and I that in these words, Jesus is giving us our divine job description. This is our job description. As his followers... This is what our life is to be aimed toward, given to. As his followers, when we live out these job descriptions of being salt, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, this is how our life in Jesus makes the most sense. You know, a job description is an incredible tool. And actually, I would recommend for anyone, before you say yes to a job, really read the description. 
and make sure you agree with it. Make sure it resonates with you. Because otherwise, you may be saying yes to something that's going to add great misery to your life. And it doesn't matter how much they pay you. If the job description says X, but you have a vision of, no, I'm going to make it Y, don't dream. <laughs> be realistic. I've seen this happen over and over again. People say yes to jobs that clearly outline one thing, but they don't want to do that. They want to do this, and then all of a sudden, it's just unbelievable, untold friction and tension. Similarly, spiritually, if this is our job description, we need to understand what it means. Because if we don't understand what it means that Jesus says, you and I are the salt of the earth, that you and I are the light of the world, then following him will create great frustration, a lot of confusion. It won't make sense because Jesus will be inviting you one way and you will be walking the other way. But this is his job description. And this is important. Why? Because it describes how we are to relate to the world. It describes our relationship to the world. And until we get that firmly squared up with Jesus, our existence in this world will be frustrating, confusing, and we won't actually bear fruit and glorify Jesus the way he calls us to. Sadly, for many of us, though we hear Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth. This is your job description. You are the light of the world. This is how you're supposed to relate to the world. We often relate to the world as neither. We relate to the world as consumers. And when you relate to the world as a consumer, you actually are never going to be much different than people that don't follow Jesus. Because everybody in this world is being pushed toward that posture of you are here to take, you are here to grab, you are here to use, you are here for your advantage, you are here for your accumulation, you are here for your aggrandizement, you are here for you, a consumer, the customer is always right. That's the mantra of a consumer-related world. And if you and I live as such, where we are always right, where the world exists for our comforts, for our pleasures, then we're going to experience a lot of friction when Jesus says, no, you're not supposed to live in the world the same way the world tells you to. You are to live in this world as the salt of the earth and as the light of the world. That goes against the grain of how the world is trying to shape us. And let's be very clear, the world is trying to shape us into a different form and a different image than this image that Jesus puts forth for us where he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The world is trying to shape us differently. And you could feel it if you pay attention to it. And you could find yourself getting swept up in it if you're paying attention. I remember a friend of mine, he told me, uh, he, he pastors one of the largest churches in New England. And so literally there's not many places you could go in New England where you won't bump into somebody who potentially goes to uh, his church. And so he was at a Patriots game. And so as he's telling me the story, 
I had to forgive him even, even from the outset because he's telling me about a team I have no interest in. And so, but I'm listening, and now if you know, fans in New England are a little extra. They're a little extra. How many New England fans we have in the room? Just I want to know who I might be offending. And so, because um, I mean extra in the most generous way, of course. Um, no, they're, they're intense, intense. All the sports teams in New England, whether it's the Boston Celtics or the New England Patriots or the Red Sox, it's not rational fan-going behavior there. It's not. I could tell you story after story. So he's in, he's at a, uh, a Patriots game, and there's this guy next to him who was like really, really just in it. He had the war paint on. You ever see those fans? where like they think they're actually playing, but they're not, you know, but they're so in it. And so yeah, the pain on, he's really intense. And at a certain point, he's just, just like, my friend's kind of quiet. And so he's like egging him on. He's like, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna destroy them. And he's like, yeah. So he's getting into it and he's feeling himself like, this is not my normal reaction, but the environment is intense. And so now it's just like, we're gonna crush them. He's like, yeah, yeah. So now he's getting into it. He's feeling the energy. And he's like, and anybody who doesn't cheer, we're going to kill them. And he's like, yeah. And then he realizes, I just like signed on to murder people. You know, like it, the environment was so strong that he felt like he was swept up in it. And all of a sudden he began to embody the environment rather than actually stand out in it. What Jesus calls us to is to not be the equivalent of a thermometer that can shift based on the temperature externally, but he calls us in essence to be thermostats where we set the tone, where we influence, where we leave our imprint as salt and light. See, Jesus defines who we are in this world, and he doesn't leave it up to chance to let the world define who we are. And he's teaching those of us who are called to be in relationship with them how you and I are to live in this world, both personally as well as us as a people. And, and to be clear, it should be a warning to us the way Jesus gives us this description, this job description, that it's a job description that influences the world rather than letting the world influence us. That in the world we change things rather than letting the world change us. So let's look at the first aspect of this job description. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. Now, it's hard to imagine a world without refrigeration. In fact, I don't want to imagine that world because in that world, air conditioner doesn't exist. And in that world, I commit a crime just because heat is getting to me. And so, I love air conditioning. Can anybody say yes to air conditioning? Yes. Amen. Praise the Lord. There was a time in the world where air conditioning did not exist, refrigeration didn't, and guess what was the most valuable thing then? Salt. Because salt was used in place of the function of a refrigerator or a freezer. When salt was rubbed onto meat, it preserved it and not only added flavor. Here's what's interesting is that salt in its purity, sodium chloride, can actually never lose its saltiness, can never lose it in its purity. So then what is Jesus saying? If you remember, he said, 
if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no, it's, it isn't good for anything. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. So what is Jesus actually talking about? Back then, salt was actually not pure. It was a diluted form. And so what it was is that it was usually like these lumps of white powder that contained portions of sodium chloride. And so what happened is that the powder over time would leak the chloride or the actual salt and just become like this white dust over time. And so in that case, what Jesus is saying actually makes sense because the salt as they knew it would have no taste and couldn't perform its job to stop decay. So when Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, this is the job description he's communicating to us. He's saying, you are the preservative in the world. In other words, by your presence in the world as my followers, you help to stop the decay and the rot in this world. Now, as New Yorkers, that's an odd and difficult job description because as New Yorkers, what you and I are very good at is complaining about the decay and the rot. Like, if you sit with a New Yorker for a short amount of time, it doesn't take much, anything. All of a sudden, we're, we're complaining about the traffic. We're complaining about the 7 train. We're complaining about the police. We're complaining about sanitation. We're complaining about... Ex we complain about the rot and about the decay, yet Jesus says our job description is to keep the decay and the rot at bay. Not to consume. The consumer says, this world, this city exists for me. And when it doesn't satisfy me, I push against it. I reject it. I complain it. But if you're the salt of the earth, it says, no, I actually exist for the sake of the world. I don't know if you realize that. You woke up feeling just perhaps potentially normal, average, the way you do every single day. But today, Jesus is saying, you're not just average. You're not just normal. You're not just a run-of-the-mill person. You, by following me, I create you to be the salt of the earth. You have a job in this world, and it is to stop decay and rot. How many can sense some conviction when you hear those words? Because it actually communicates that we have a responsibility in the face of brokenness and rot and decay rather than an opportunity to complain and detach and run. I gotta be real, I, I struggle with the South in my heart, even though I enjoy visiting the South. But here's why I struggle with it. Because so many New Yorkers feel like it's their exit plan. So many Christian New Yorkers. If you're not a Christian, I actually don't understand why you live in New York, to be honest. And so if you're not a Christian here, tell me why you live here. I'm fascinated, explain to me. Because let's be honest, it's so much easier to live in so many other places. So much cheaper, so whatever. But the thing is, if the rationale is to live as a consumer, then it makes sense to go everywhere the currents take you. But if you and I are salt of the earth, 
that actually our presence is most needed where the rot is most seen. I knew I was going to get a lot of amens at that point because that statement, I'm sure, resonates with the searches on (laughs) Realtor.com. I get it. It's a hard place. And it's easy to fantasize about running. But let's be clear, wherever you go, you are to find the rot and the decay. And by you following Jesus and you being there, we're supposed to stem the tide of that. But Jesus says that the salt can lose its saltiness. In other words, that we could lose this preservative, anti-decay influence that we're supposed to have in this world. And what happens when that happens? He says, we become no good, and all the best we could expect is to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot. Man, Jesus doesn't mince words. I often wonder, what would Jesus... No, I'm not going to go there. Lord... Thank you. Okay. Um, Oh, that would have been an epic rabbit trail. Um, Check with me afterwards. I think actually that rabbit trail could be really funny. But I digress. Um, See, it's an interesting thing. If we're called to push back against the decay and the rot of the world, one of the ways you and I know that we're losing our saltiness is that when we look to the world to preserve us, when we look to the world as the solution against our decay, or we look to the world to say, I need you to sustain me, to provide what I'm missing, what I'm lacking, what I'm yearning for. When we're in that posture, when we're looking for the world to preserve us, and when we actually become so comfortable in this life that we no longer look to push against the powers of decay in our world, we've lost our saltiness. If you and I don't find ourselves caring for the state of the education system in our city, for the state of policing, for the the condition of many of our neighborhoods, for the economic inequities, for the lack of educational opportunities that are not universally accessed, if that doesn't pierce us, if that doesn't move, if the fact that we have a mental health crisis on our hands in our city, you see it every day, you see it when you're taking the train, you see it when you're walking the streets. We also have a drug use epidemic. It doesn't look the same that it did in the 80s and 90s, but drug use is at an all-time high, especially because we have now legalized and, and just accepted different forms of drugs and just say it's just part of our life now, realize there are so many people that can't survive without substances to prop them up. It's a crisis. All over, you can look. There's a foster care crisis in New York City. There's thousands of kids. Over 8,000 right now are in the foster care system. And if you don't know, the foster care system is ground zero for so much brokenness that metastasizes in our society. Actually, over 
of men in incarceration were once connected to the foster care system. The homeless population, a large number, I believe it's over 60% of homeless were once connected to the foster care system. Human trafficking, uh, the, the list could go on and on and on. The things that are all around us, the racial inequities and the injustices that exist, I know it can be tiresome and exhausting to talk about all of these things and face them. And I'm with you. At times, I want to just put my head in the sand and act like it doesn't exist. But at the moment we do so, we cease to be salt that is supposed to be rubbed into the places where decay and rot are happening. Jesus calls us into those spaces. But he doesn't just stop there. He not only says that we're the salt of the earth, he says we are the light of the world. Do you realize that? That in your absence, the world goes incredibly dark. That your presence is needed as his follower in this world because you and I are to be a presence of light. You see, if salt talks about preserving and kind of stemming the tide of decay, but it doesn't really talk about forward motion, forward movement, or blazing a path in the darkness of this world, but light actually does. Light gives us a way forward. Light expels darkness. It exposes the darkness that we seek to ignore as it shines in the midst of darkness. And notice, when he says that you're the light of the world, the language that he uses, he says that we're supposed to be a light to the world similar to a city on a hill, a city that can't be missed, that's seen for miles, that you're to be a lampstand, a light on a lampstand, visible, not to be hidden under a bushel. Jesus is describing us in these terms. That in our dark and broken world, our presence as his followers is to expel darkness, to shine a path forward, to look at the decay and the brokenness, to enter into that space and move our world forward for his glory and his renown. And what is this light that Jesus speaks of? How is our light seen? Specifically, he says, the way our light shines and is seen by others is through our good works. Through our good works. Now this gets tricky because when we hear works, there's a lot of theological baggage around that concept and sometimes we could miss something. But we're going to tackle that for a moment. But I remember... There was this family that I was talking with a couple years ago in my neighborhood, and it's amazing how God guides one's path. I remember I was talking to them very intently and asking them a ton of questions because they have a daughter with Down syndrome. This was years ago. And I was keenly interested in their life and how it looked like because at that time, Andrew Oliver was guiding our church through all that Do For One stands for and, what, and the work that they do. If you're not familiar with Do For One, 
Uh, they do incredible work creating friendships with people that have disabilities and those that don't. Because if you're not aware, people with disabilities often have very isolated lives because any friendships they have are typically around someone providing service to them. In other words, if people are in their life, it's because people are paid to be in their life. Could you imagine if your whole life, your friends were paid to be your friend? Could you imagine how that might feel? That if they weren't paid, they wouldn't be your friend. And so I was telling this woman about do for one, and she wasn't a Christian. And she actually looked at me so puzzled and astonished. She said, you mean to tell me that there are people who want to be friends with people like my daughter for no other reason than the fact that their faith in Jesus moves them to do so? I said, yeah, actually, that's exactly it. And the puzzled look never left her face. This was revolutionary for her. But it gripped her, the thought that someone would be motivated to live like that based on them following Jesus. Jesus tells us our good works are to be a light. They're to demonstrate and illuminate to people the reality of God in our dark and broken world. Again, you might have woken up and maybe felt a little down or maybe you had a rough week, but I hope you go into this week feeling a little extra encouraged and some umph in your step to realize how Jesus sees you and me in this world. That when we detect rot and decay and we run toward it rather than run from it, that as we engage there, not only do we stop the, tent, the, the, stop the tide of decay, but we actually form a solution. We're a response to the question that society is asking. What do we do with this brokenness? By our presence there, we can be a light. And so Jesus says very clearly, if you are his follower, you and I should have works, good works, and those good works are to be a light to others, to point to the goodness of our Father. And so if you and I here in this room, when we take an inventory of our life, and if the inventory comes up, Low with respect to good works. That is a pause, a cause to pray, to examine, to reflect. That's not Jesus trying to shame you, but that is Jesus trying to alert you and say, there's part of my job description for you that you're not fully living out. And I want to invite you to fully live this out, that your presence could not only be salt in this world, but a light in this world. And so works as Jesus is describing it, is part of our witness. It's part of how we declare to this world that Jesus is alive and he's Lord and he's real and that he's transformed your life and mine. But here's the good news. Though works is a part of our witness, it's not part of our worth. The gospel tells us that you and I are not related to by God based on our good works, that he doesn't love us more or love us less depending on the presence or absence of works in our life. And so if you and I don't work and do good works in order to be loved, actually the opposite is true. Because we're loved, works are produced out of our life. 
And again, if we connect what Jesus is saying here to the previous verses, if you're here thinking that in order to be a light in this world and salt in this earth, that you have to do big demonstrative things, that you have to run campaigns and create organizations and have rallies. and that. No, actually, if you look at everything he said before we got to these verses, the influence that we're to have in this world is completely tethered to the character that he shapes in us. There's, a, there's an expression that St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Jesus can transform you and I so deeply in our character that just by our presence, we can be salt and light. That perhaps our good works is not saying something, it's actually choosing not to say something. When you're at the workplace and everybody's engaged in gossip and slander and, and, and saying racist jokes, and, and at that moment, your choice to not engage is salt and light. It's as your character and mine is transformed by Jesus, he positions us to be salt and light. So let's talk for a few moments how can we as the church be salt and light to this world? How can we influence this world the way Jesus is calling us to? So first off, if we're salt, that means we are positioned in this world to help stop the, t the, the tide of decay. And if we're light, we're positioned in this world to show an alternate way, a path forward. But here's the thing about both salt and light. In order for it to be effective, you can't be salt and light and bring your positive attributes from a distance. The salt has to be rubbed in. The light has to be where darkness is at. If this whole room was lit up and you turned on a flashlight, not much of an impact. But if it was pitch black and a light was shown, all of a sudden you're making a difference. We can't be salt and light, number one, from afar. And I say that because many Christians, the more Christianly we become over the years, the less friends we have that are not Christians. We create distance with people that don't follow Jesus. And what happens when you create distance with something? You, seek to, you stop understanding. You stop growing in empathy. You, don't, you, you stop remaining curious and open. And it's easier to judge and to actually not love. It's really hard to create a, caricature, a caricature in our minds of someone who we actually know. But yet, how often as Christians we detach and disconnect from the very people we're called to love that need the light. But what does it look like for us to be salt and light to our families? Is there an area of decay or rot in your family that Jesus is calling you to be a presence there? Are there conversations that are never had? Are there frictions and tensions that are never resolved? Are there, are there awkward spaces in your family environments 
that rather than detach or disconnect, your presence there could be a presence of change? Is there stuff brewing in your child's life that, though complex and difficult, and you might want to detach and disconnect and hope it goes away, but whatever it means for you to enter in, actually be present and engage? Where are the areas of decay, brokenness in your family that Jesus is calling you and I to be present, to be salt, to be light? How about relationships? There's some of us that are single and you're getting to know folks. And trust me, I pray for the single people in our church all the time because I know how just difficult of a season that is and how confusing it can be. And I was single during a time where all the apps and all the ways that people meet each other don't exist, didn't exist. It's just exponentially more complex. But yet, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not just in the market like a hunter trying to find some fresh prey when you're dating. You're to be a presence of light and witness. And people should know that you follow Jesus because of the way you treat them and actually engage with them in those spaces. How about business and work? If you and I are salt and light in this world, then the way we conduct ourselves in that space should be very, very different. We shouldn't be driven by the same motives to exploit and to, and to take advantage of that often drives the marketplace. Our ethics should be shaped by the person and love of Jesus. And by doing so, we stand out as salt and light in this world. Or how about politics or discussions about race and injustice? It's hard to be salt and light in this world if we allow ourselves to be more discipled by Fox News or CNN rather than the Word of God. If those are the things that shape and inform your values more than who Jesus is, then we're just going to be an echo for either party, for either ideology. But what would it look like for us to be totally different, a different presence in this world? As I invite us to stand as the worship team comes forward, this is an incredible opportunity and a very high charge that Jesus invites us to. He calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If you ever once doubted if your presence mattered, if your life counted, if Jesus has a sense of importance for your life, I hope today totally refuted those lies. You matter as his follower. Your presence matters because through you, he wants to shine his light in this dark world. Through you, he wants to preserve what's decaying and rotting. Through you, he wants people to know that the same way he transformed you and I, he can transform them. Let's, let's, as we close in prayer, as the worship team leads us, at any given moment, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer in the back.
The prayer team would love to pray with you for any of the words that were shared or anything you might be going through personally or anything the message might have stirred for you. Wherever you're at, over these next few moments, you can slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer in the back to my, my right, to your left. But if you feel comfortable, could I invite us to raise our hands in the presence of God? It's a posture of surrender, a posture of receiving. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us and would we hear your words resound deep in our hearts that we are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And may we say yes to that calling and live it out to its fullness. Let's worship him.